Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. Hi, everyone. The format today is a bit different. Uh, I have two guests, Drs. Heidi Twork and uh, Devayan Ghosh. And as listeners know, we typically talk about emerging research and recent or unpublished papers. Uh, today, we are going to focus on democracy, elections, and the role of media. Uh, before we start, I want to give a shout out to New Zealand and Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who had a landslide victory today. Uh, this tiny island down under restores my faith in humanity and democracy, as it often does. Uh, a country truly deserves the leaders it gets, I believe. Uh, now on to introductions. Uh, Heidi, you want to go first? Sure. So I'm Heidi Tvorek. I'm an Associate Professor of uh, Public Policy and International History at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And I study the history and public policy of communications and media in Europe and North America and around the world. Great. Dibayan? Hi, my name is Dipayan Ghosh. Uh, I lead the uh, Digital Platforms and Democracy Project at the Harvard Kennedy School uh, and uh, very happy to be here uh, today, Gil, uh, and, and with you, Heidi. Uh, study um, uh, primarily social media platforms, their business models, and, and their impact on society. Great, great. Uh, and so, so we have um, two experts, um, uh, both in, in terms of history of democracy and, and history of nations, uh, as well as more, um, you know, modern times, how social media and other things might have affected uh, the function of, functioning of democracy and the outcomes. Uh, so, Heidi, uh, could you um, sort of lay out um, the, the, the history a little bit? Um, uh, I don't know, we have over 200, 220 countries uh, worldwide. Um, I don't know what the status of democracy is today. <laughs> could, you, could you lay out a bit of a history for us? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we, we have a lot of um, 
places that are monitoring various aspects of democracy, right? Whether it's freedom of the media through um, NGOs like Freedom House or others um, who are academics who are monitoring just what is the status of a democracy, right? Because we often say democracy, but there's actually questions of how robust is that democracy? Is it flawed in certain ways? How easy is it for people to vote? Um, and even within authoritarian systems, you can have competing authoritarianism where there's still an election, but it's incredibly hard for the opposition parties to win. Um, so to give a brief and potted history, um, since the end of the Cold War, there was a, a period in the 1990s where democracies seemed to really be on the ascent where the number of democracies, but also the quality of democracy um, seemed to be going up in a huge number of places. But we have seen over the last 20 to 25 years, a huge amount of democratic backsliding, um, something that has happened all around the world in, in different places and that has caused a great deal of concern for scholars because it's not just that countries are no longer democracies, it's that the quality of their democracy is changing, that they are becoming flawed in new ways. Um, and particularly related to media, um, Freedom House has been documenting for quite a few years that the freedom of media around the world is also consistently decreasing. So that includes attacks on journalists, inability to do their jobs. But I think I would add one other thing, which is also the economics of it um, yeah. are also a threat to democracy because yeah. it undermines the ability to have a whole host of different um, types of media outlets that are financially robust and, and can report. So I think we, we unfortunately are in a period where there's a whole host of reasons to be very concerned about democracy. Right. Yeah. You know, um, there is a scale problem, obviously. So uh, if you look at some sort of a demo democracy index uh, around the world, uh, you see, I mentioned New Zealand, um, many of the Western European countries uh, is still pretty, uh, pretty solid democracies. Uh, but this retreat that you talked about appears to have happened uh, in, in large countries, uh, large democracies. Uh, is there a specific reason uh, for something like that to happen? So I think we, we've seen it not just in large countries, but also in some uh, smaller and newer democracies. But before I get, <laughs> before I get into the, the sort of negative, I would say that you're quite right to point to some places where democracy has actually become more robust in some sense. Um, South Korea would be yeah. one of them. Actually, their election in April, which was the first major nationwide election during COVID, they had a turnout of 66%, which was the highest turnout in 28 years. So I think we do see some, <laughs> some bright sparks in this landscape. But there are a whole host of reasons why I think democracy is, is facing problems. They are intertwined and they are complex to do with immigration, rising inequality, rising populism. And we also need to throw, and, and Depine can talk more about this, social media platforms into the mix, which often, I think, accelerate uh, many of the other trends and discontents within democracy that I've just listed. Yeah, so that's a, that's an area we want to explore. So, Dibayan, uh, you have done a lot of work in this area, and we have seen uh, effects of social media in, in the U.S. in the last few elections, and um, it is increasingly... Uh, a complication or, or a worry uh, for many policymakers. Um, you want to talk a bit about sort of the status of uh, of the I would take I would say the takeover of democracy by social media. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, luckily, luckily, I don't think uh, I don't think social media has completely taken over democracy, but 
uh, for what it's worth, it has uh, it has definitely uh, impacted democracy in in, in many ways. Uh, stepping back for a moment, and, and Heidi is a is a much more uh, renowned scholar in uh, in in the area of, of uh, media regulation, history of media. But um, we had a traditional media ecosystem um, that uh, that was really well defined by uh, by broadcast, radio, uh, traditional print. Um, we over over the years had a few uh, technological trends around. Um, uh, increasing processing speeds and, and increasing capacity to store data, and of course the advent of the internet itself as well, which really uh, allowed the rise of, of dominant new digital platforms that have drawn uh, human citizen attention away from traditional media formats into uh, into these new platforms. And what does that mean? It, it means that it's sucked a bunch of economic activity from the rest of society into these platforms. That's that's not a good or a bad thing. That's just a that's just a scientific thing, if you will, yeah. um, in the sense that uh, uh, this is this is a instantiation of of just the technological base evolving over time, moving us towards social media. Um, and and admittedly, what that has meant is that as social media and internet platforms have become more pop, uh, more uh, more important. Uh, in the context of our uh, our um, uh, daily lives, um, they have also impacted uh, democracy because democracy is is everywhere. It's it's how we consume. It it, it relates to everything in terms of how we yeah. consume media and and form of yeah. That is of course uh, defined by. Uh, social media, uh, especially for uh, increasingly for younger people uh, in places like the United States. Right, right. Yeah. So uh, I want to rewind time a little bit, um, um, yet, you know, maybe for just nostalgic purposes and uh, some <laughs> listeners might <laughs> might appreciate. Uh, when I was growing up in South India, um, I, I had a shortwave radio and I spent quite a bit of time listening to BBC. Uh, uh, I should admit, mostly for cricket, but uh, sometimes for <laughs> sometimes for uh, for news as well, and and so my you know conception of news uh, is really listening to BBC. And my grandfather, uh, who was a senator in the Southern State, um, also uh, had BBC on all the time, uh, and so that's how I grew up. And uh, nobody listens to radio <laughs> anymore. Uh, perhaps a podcast is sort of a new uh, version, uh, perhaps of radio, but it's different. Um, and so, so, so Heidi, you know, is there sort of a historical merge of uh, information flowing to people as technology changes, and and, and what what are the effects of that? Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you asked that question because <laughs> the book that I wrote um, that was published last year was really all about um, how new technologies can change uh, politics and economics and, and why it is, in, in particular, what I looked at was why it is that the Germans in the first half of the 20th century became really interested in news and particularly in the new technology of, of wireless and radio to try to change politics and economics and cultural understandings of Germans, both within Germany and 
around the world. So I think one of the things that, that's helpful for us when we think about our present moment is to recognize there have obviously been <laughs> new media technologies in the past and mm. policymakers, industrialists, journalists, academics have all looked to those technologies and tried to, to use them to, to shape politics, economics and so on. And obviously I was, I was looking at a, a particularly fraught period, right, when, when Germany goes through being uh, democracy and then descends into the, the horrific Nazi period. Um, but I think yeah. there is a lot that that can tell us because it tells us that these fights over what a new technology can do, what it should be, whether it should serve democracy, whether it should be allowed to be global. Um, these are fights that we've had over technologies before. And it pushes us to ask the question of what is unprecedented about our present moment. And there are certainly things that are unprecedented. But then there are these power struggles that I look at in this book, the the ways in which uh, fights over regulation happen um, that certainly have happened before with things like uh, radio or even uh, TV and you go back even further and you get to telegraphy. So I find that to be very helpful in thinking about how to address our current problems is just to be able to disentangle what's the fight that we keep having about new media technologies and what are the things yeah. that are truly unprecedented about these platforms? Yeah, so um, e either one of you can respond to this. So yeah, do we see a difference uh, between, let's say, Western Europe and, let's say, U.S. Uh, for starters, uh, the way that uh, technology is used and consumed? For example, I don't know too much about this, but in Germany, I believe uh, they have only a few channels on TV and and really the, the news that they consume is is really from maybe one or two channels. And, um, uh, you know, as opposed to, I don't know, 500 channels in the U.S. Uh, so uh, do we do we have a view as to if there is a significant difference in how technology is used and um, and, and consumed by uh, by people who get news in Western Europe and uh, in the U.S.? Uh, I, I suppose I can tell you that because I write about Germany amongst other places. So you, you want to ask about the present, right? So what's, yeah. what are we currently yeah. I, I mean, we do see in, I, I'll just take Germany because it's the, the place I've written the most about in, in Europe. I mean, one of the, the major differences is obviously that, that in Germany, as in many places in Europe, and in and Britain, you have uh, public broadcasters, right, like the BBC or, or their equivalents in, in Germany. And so that that does change the, the media landscape somewhat when they are um, quite strong within a media landscape. I would also say that um, there, there is significant choice, um, but that Germany in many ways uses social uses social media somewhat less than in the US um, and mm. more traditional channels like newspapers are still somewhat stronger in Germany. But if you look at the trends of where things are going, you could almost see Germany kind of 10 years behind the US on that curve, maybe five to 10 years in terms of how many people are, are using social media and so on. So um, there's still much higher trust in media institutions, but we do see some fraying of that around the edges and the use in Germany of uh, many of the same social media platforms, to be honest, that, uh, that get used right. in the US, which is, I think, the, the source of some of the concerns that Europeans have about how those platforms are structured through an American way of viewing a media landscape and what that does to a somewhat different European way of thinking about how you communicate with publics and, and how media should function. Divine, hmm. do you have a view as to, you know, sort of the difference in how information is internalized 
uh, by people, uh, by, you know, uh, print or more conventional media like uh, radio or, or audio in general, uh, and then TV, and then, you I think, know. I think, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think there, sorry, I think there's a bit of a delay. Um, you know, I, I think for sure there there are major differences in the way that, that people consume uh, uh, media, whether it's, whether it's print versus broadcast versus social media. And of course, um, there, there's, there's been a lot of discussion over how social media has a very different kind of psychological impact uh, on, uh, on users, uh, than, uh, than prior forms. Prior forms are, of course, um, largely, whether we're talking about the BBC or, um, Deutsche Welle or, or uh, another, uh, another outlet, let's say in Western Europe, um, or a broadcast outlet in the United States or India, um, are, are forms of, uh, mass media. Um, and social media is, is slightly different in the sense that um, there are billions of pieces of content um, that, that can be shown to any given person. And um, the, the algorithms within the platform determine who the person, who, who, who every particular individual user is, hmm. uh, what their behavioral profiles are, and, um, and predicts what they might like to see. Um, and uh, that, that in and of itself is a very different process and yields a very different sort of uh, media consumption. And this is why a lot of people talk about how um, there's, there's a, this addiction factor uh, when we think about platforms like Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, yeah. So that's a big difference, right? So the ability to customize information in small chunks uh, uh, is what happened last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, so, so broad, uh, you know, sort of medium, uh, whether it's print or radio, didn't have that capability, right? Um, there is also some, you know, sort of um, uh, biological uh, effects. Uh, when I was at Hewlett Packard Company a long time ago, there was some research that showed that, and Hewlett Packard, as you know, is a big uh, printing uh, printer maker. Um, there was some research around um, how much information actually gets into the brain uh, by looking at print uh, as opposed to looking at a computer screen. And it was substantially high, higher uh, by looking at a print medium. And so this brings the question, and things might have changed as, as we consume more and more electronic stuff, uh, but it brings to the question that uh, when news is coming to somebody through electronic channels, obviously the customization thing that we will talk about, but also is that person really able to internalize that information effectively uh, is questionable. I don't know if there, there has been any recent research in this area. Well, I can tell you what I do in my classes, if that's any help, because I always spend some <laughs> yeah. time before my lecture. So this is obviously, you know, pre-online COVID world. But um, I did look into that research because I was trying to decide, should my students have laptops or not? You know, should they be making notes on a laptop or not? And there have been studies within classrooms, right, to see, okay, if students take notes by hand on a piece of paper, do they retain more than if they are taking notes by laptop? And all of the studies that I found 
found the same as your um, Hewlett-Packard study, which is that students, simply by taking notes by hand, actually performed better in the final mm. exam, right? Because it was a more active form of learning. So always in the, in the first lecture when things used to be in person, uh, I would say, here's all the studies that I know. You know, I'm, I'm an academic, so please let me know if there's another study or something that contradicts this. I'm more than happy to, to change my policy. And obviously, I'll, I'll accommodate for anybody with um, issues where they can't uh, write for some reason. Um, but I've never had a, a student, and I've personally never found a study that, that contradicts that. Mm, okay, okay. And so, so, so from that, I want to jump into, um, again, going to that uh, customization question. So, you know, one of the things that we have noted uh, last few years is this uh, disinformation attacks uh, through electronic channels and um, the ability to customize, the ability to use artificial intelligence to really understand uh, not only the orientation uh, of the consumer, but also perhaps how many seconds of eye time and brain time you are likely to get from that person uh, and then designing a pellet, I would say, of disinformation in a very targeted fashion is really a big industry now. Um, it, it, is, it is wars being fought between countries uh, and between companies. And so, so Dubai, what is, the, what is sort of the status quo on this now? Well, uh, I think I think the sort of regime that that you describe is is very much enabled uh, by uh, by the some of the biggest uh, internet companies out there today, um, and they very much define the status quo. Uh, we saw this uh, particularly in, in instances like the U.S. election in, in 2016, and this one, where um, whether you're a foreign disin disinformation operator or uh, a political campaign uh, or PAC in, in the United States, let's say, um, the, uh, th there is tremendous incentive. There is a system that you can take advantage of that uh, through which you can essentially um, analyze the voting population using, uh, using all the data that you have at hand. Um, so for instance, that could be voter records, that could be something like the Cambridge Analytica data dump, or, or it could be uh, it could be data internal to uh, social media companies. But analyze all the data. Um, start to understand the pockets of uh, voters uh, across the American voting population that might be particularly uh, reactive to, uh, to, your, to your messaging. Um, and then just shower them with that messaging, whether it's conspiracy or disinformation or hateful, uh, hateful messaging or vi even violence inciting, um, or for that matter, uh, a more positive sort of message. Though, of course, more positive and newsy, truthful messages don't, don't um, get the same kind of engagement, honestly, as, um, as more vicious uh, forms of content. Uh, but shower, shower that content on, um, on these thin cracks in society and, and watch as they break. That, that is the, uh, that's the tactic that disinformation uh, operators have, um, have understood uh, they, can, they can implement to, to great success. Yeah, and um, you know, if you just uh, sort of look at the last four years, um, do you see this problem, um, you know, we know that it kind of increased. Is it plateauing or is it sort of accelerating? It's, it's getting out of control. 
Um, you know, I think I think uh, it's accelerating in in the following, and I, I think there are reasons why we uh, why we can see the why we can see more activity. Um, and that's not to say that social media companies, internet platforms haven't haven't done anything, but um, I think we're seeing more activity, and, and we're seeing more activity because, uh, first of all, there's an example that uh, we can all point to in the case of Russian disinformation operations in 2016, four years ago, that um, uh, facially had uh, had success in, in potentially influencing voters. Um, so there's an example, and uh, with that example, many more uh, uh, bad actors have come to understand uh, how these platforms work, how this process works. And meanwhile, I think um, I think the companies uh, in question could have done a lot more. Uh, I'm talking, about, of course, about the biggest internet companies uh, in, in the economy, um, in Silicon Valley, and, and they could have done more. Um, we've seen them align with free speech and, and not... Um, uh, take, take, take a position where through which they, they are not going to hold themselves accountable to, to really do anything about political disinformation, especially when it comes from politicians. And I think that's that's a that's a core problem and, and one that really deserves a close look uh, from uh, from the regulatory community. And I think it will receive a closer look on, under the right political circumstances. Great, great. Uh, Heidi, you know, uh, is, is there any research around, this is just my intuition, there is some network effects, right? So let's say somebody sets out to, um, you know, sort of spread disinformation. Uh, that disinformation can uh, sort of increase in the population through network effects. And my intuition tells me that if that is true, you might see higher levels of polarization so essentially once you are in a channel uh then you know the, the amount of water coming behind you so to speak is going to push you in that direction you cannot swim um uh swim against the against the tide so to speak right so is there any research around that both uh, both in a contemporary sense or looking at this yeah it's a good question i'm going to divide it into two parts so the first is the question of how do you get a certain type of information and then are you in what many people call a filter bubble right so you get some information from a certain political direction do you then only get served and see that kind of information so with that the research is a bit mixed actually so while we talk in a lot of sort of popular media about filter bubbles, um, some of the research seems to indicate that it's actually not as strong as we thought it was, um, that many people actually do seek out information that isn't necessarily uh, within their comfort zone, though that there are certain segments of the population who don't do that. So I'd say the research is a bit more mixed than the, the common belief that we're all in filter bubbles. Um, the second part of your question, though, is uh, whether and how the effects of this build up over time, uh, which is quite hard to measure, but I think very important because we can all think yeah. of stories we've read where we're not immediately persuaded by them, right? So the idea that, that one piece of information or disinformation is going to suddenly totally change everything we thought about the world <laughs> is unlikely. Um, mm -hmm. But cumulative effects right. over time that shape how we see the world, or we might say shift the Overton window so that the space of discussion, um, that I think is, is quite important to contemplate and particularly this question of how far do people um, become more and more pushed into 
hyper-partisan environments. I'd say it's 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 mm. also just thinking about sort of causation rather than correlation because there are all of these other things that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast going on, right? Like rising inequality, problems with COVID and so on and so yeah. forth, which are bigger political problems. It's sometimes hard to disaggregate how far mm. social media is the cause, um, but certainly it is happening at the same time. Um, and we do see greater polarization not just in the US, but also in some other democracies as well. So elections being fought on a more partisan basis. There are obviously counterexamples, um, but it certainly is a, is a trend that we see in other countries as well, not just the US. And those are countries where the same social media platforms are operating. Yeah, so so it's sort of puzzling in, uh, in one way. Uh, I would have thought that education per capita is increasing. What I mean by education is the level of education that uh, that the population has reached. And if that is true, I don't know if it is true, I just my intuition, then one would imagine with education comes set of tools uh, to look at data, to look at information and form logical conclusions. Uh, but we don't, uh, do we find that in larger populations? Um, I think maybe what, what we're speaking to is what is the type of education, right? Because um, all of the, the problems that Depayan pointed to are quite new. And a lot of the ways in which our education systems function was not necessarily to educate people how to deal with information online. The good news is that um, people who are working in NGOs and elsewhere who are really trying to create tools to help people navigate the online world um, do actually see significant effects if you give people the, the tools to be able to understand the online environment. Um, and, and often in some of those experiments, it's not actually correlated with the amount of education. So for example, there was one experiment, uh, I think it was given to uh, perhaps historians, if I remember rightly, and, and asked them to assess whether a particular web page was true or not. And so um, the, the historians applied their, their usual techniques, which was you read one page really in depth and sort of analyze it in and of itself. Um, but that's not necessarily the best way to do things online because you actually really need to cross check things. Um, so it turned out that those who were more educated didn't have quite the right tools to be able to assess information online. So I think it's a lot about the, the type of education, um, but also understanding that while that is one piece of the puzzle, there are so many others because it's also the question of how much platforms and other parts of the online space are engineered to bypass those sorts of faculties, right? I mean, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist, called this our systems one and two, right? Our intuitive systems and our deep thinking systems. So it's a sort of bigger question of how the online environment is structured to bypass those kinds of deep thinking systems to try to get towards our, our intuitions, which um, makes it much harder for us to react in a way that, that does indeed <laughs> follow more logical thinking. So I think right, it's, a, right. it's a very complex question and that has a lot to do with the ways platforms yeah. are engineered. Right, right. Yeah, I, I will throw this out for debate. I want to get both of your perspectives on it. Um, and so, you know, democracy uh, has had different forms and Heidi, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm beginning to become a proponent of direct democracy now. Uh, with uh, technologies that exist today, you could actually move into, uh, even large democracies could move into a democracy where the, you, you are really uh, making a choice on policy rather than an intermediary who would make the policy for you. And uh, what we have seen from this large democracy is that intermediation is not really working. Um, and, and especially in a country like the US with a two-party system, 
no, policies don't really fit into a blue bucket and red bucket so nicely. And then you go out and say, I'm going to get a blue guy or a red guy. Uh, I don't know. It really is even possible logically. Uh, so I just, I'll just throw this out and uh, I want to get both of your perspectives on it. Divine, do you want to go? First? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, I think I think there are so many different ways that there are so many so many different configurations of uh, democratic process that, that uh, we could imagine, and and um, and direct this this ultimate form of direct democracy is a very interesting uh, idea and has been toyed with, I think, by democracies in the past in different ways. Um, we see some some version of it in in California, of course. Um, there's this uh, Prop 22 uh, proposal that, that I've been tracking uh, closely right now um, concerning data privacy um, and, uh, and, and many other, many other uh, ballot initiatives in California as well. Um, uh, but um, I, I think, I think um, it, it is a very clean and clear way of getting the people to, uh, to, to advocate for themselves. Um, now, of course, what we would hope for is, is, uh, is all the conditions necessary to make this kind of process, make this kind of a democratic system, uh, fair, secure, safe, but having met those conditions, I see no problem with this. The problem is of course, that it's very hard to meet all those conditions around, you know, educational uh, level and, and, um, and, um, and, and many others, you know, you, you could you could kind of think of many ways that you could gain this this sort of a system. Um, and um, and uh, one one example, for example, for instance, is uh, in 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 one uh, at, at one level we, we have direct democracy in districts in the United States where everyone in district can determine who they, who they want their representative to be. Um, but of course, that's yeah not the not not the fairest system in in many districts um so uh, all that's to say i think there's so many different configurations of democracy that we can think about and um and for various political reasons we're we're not necessarily ever going to be able to test them all um in, in during our lifetimes um but it's uh, it's it's very hard to say what what could happen um uh, one way or the other Right, right. Heidi, yeah, have, so maybe a couple of things. I mean, there are places that are experimenting with this. So, so Taiwan has a platform called um, Polis, which is trying to experiment with with some of these ideas, right? Having citizens debate and discuss, and it's it's I think a very interesting experiment. The other version of this is things like citizens assemblies and thinking about how to use them potentially online and in other places. So I think there are, as Dipayan said, so many different configurations of democracy potentially that um, there are lots of ways that we could imagine it running differently. I mean, even the basics of um, how people vote in different democracies is really quite fundamentally different. And the incentives are so different, whether you have a system of proportional representation or it's popular vote or it's electoral college, we can see the ways that that, that changes uh, democracies, but I think regardless of any of those um, systems, we also see a deep dissatisfaction with um, democracy in the way that it's currently functioning. Mm. So thinking about how democracy not only needs to be defended, but also reformed to be more responsive to many of the concerns of citizens seems to me a really important question that <laughs> deserves a lot of discussion.
right, right. Yeah, this has been great. We'll take a quick break and we'll come right back and continue the discussion. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Um, so Dipayan, you are in the midst of uh, the U.S. elections. You're spending time in Washington. You were involved in the previous administration at some level. Um, there, there's, um, you know, there are a lot of concerns uh, around the upcoming U.S. elections. Some of them expressed by the president himself, uh, and, and some by others. Um, can you can you give us sort of a sketch of uh, what you believe is happening and uh, what we can expect in the next two weeks? Well, um, it's a it's a great question. You know, I think uh, what we're what we're seeing, of course, is that. Uh, it's it's very very uh, widely reported uh, through me, through many polls that um, former Vice President Biden has a very uh, very strong lead uh, over uh, over the president and um, I don't think many people expect that to change. There's one one debate left. Um, yes. There's there's question over whether that debate will happen. Um, or even if even if it's allowed to go forward in in physical format, um, whether whether the president will test negative uh, by then. Um, so I think I think there there's a, there's a lot of question, uh, and the expectation is that going into the election, um, Biden will uh, will be maintaining this very strong lead. Um, I think the I think there are a lot of concerns, though, um, for supporters of the former vice president that, uh, well, um, we we have seen another candidate in 2016 go into election night with a strong lead, um, uh, or or at least the month before the election, going going into that last month with a strong lead, um, the the WikiLeaks scandal as well as. Uh, the Comey uh, letter and, and then um, certain other forms of uh, misinformation and disinformation may have affected that last month. I believe personally think it affected that last month and um, that may have swung the election uh, by, by the end of that month. And so I think that people are, are quite being quite cautious um, in, in 2020. Um, in the, in the social media context, more specifically, um, we are seeing so much consternation over over the the dominant platforms. Um, Twitter, for instance, has uh, has banned all political advertising. Uh, it did so a year ago uh, in the lead up to this election. Um, uh, Facebook has not, and I mentioned those two companies only to kind of set these two points on the spectrum. Um, there are other companies that that either have not um, done anything around political advertising or have banned political advertising. And there's this spectrum. Uh, Google would fall somewhere in the middle where it has limited micro-targeting options of political advertising. So um, all that to be, you know, all that said, I, I think that, I think people are, are quite concerned that, um, that tech companies have not done quite enough 
Um, there's there's too much noise and misinformation in the media environment, and that, uh, we need to get it right. Um, yeah. And I would look yeah. to a few different threads uh, in the context of the election. Yeah, so Heidi, I want to talk a bit about this uh, negative news dump process. <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, it's a phenomenon that I, I, I really didn't follow politics while I was in India, nor here. But uh, if you just rewind time a little bit, uh, you can see at least uh, two major instances, John Kerry and Hillary Clinton in the past. And uh, this, in my view, is an optimization problem, which uh, I'm sure some technology companies are helping both parties to, to optimally time the dump, so to speak. Um, have we seen this uh, in other democracies? And uh, if so, what have been the effects of this? Yeah, I mean, the idea that political campaigns get nasty <laughs> right. um, and get strategic has been around for a long time, right? And that you try to optimize. And this used to be trying to figure out exactly when do you send out a story so you can hit before the newspapers are printing the night before before they land in the morning and so on and so forth. So these are these are, of course, uh, tactics that have been around within political campaigning for a very long time. And uh, we should remember that even U.S. elections, if we just want to stick with the, the U.S., you know, in the 19th century was extremely fraught in a whole host of different ways. So I think it, it helps us to understand there's a there's lots of continuities there. The question is, what is new about this environment? Who are the new actors who are involved? So in the long history of campaigns, of course, around the world, there's been a lot of attention to, all right, how can we position our candidate to get to the right segment of voters? Um, and unfortunately, this uh, role of negative campaigning uh, has been very clear. And I would say that one thing that's really important to understand is that often what's going on is not necessarily persuading people to vote differently, um, which is how we often talk about it, but it's actually about mobilizing or demobilizing voters for your party or mm -hmm. another party. And this, I think, has been a, a somewhat concerning development, not just in the US, is the idea that you win by demobilizing people, by persuading people not to vote. <laughs> and right, you right. might want to do that through, um, you know, robocalls, an example that has happened not just in the US, um, but also in, in Canada and other places. But what we might call sort of strategic demobilization of voters yeah. as a tactic is, I think, concerning regardless of which democracy that's happening in. Yeah, that, that's really interesting point, Heidi. So it is, it is really difficult to change somebody's mind uh, in this highly polarized world. Uh, but you can potentially do things that does not allow a person to actually vote. Uh, one of it is, like you say, demobilizing, I'm going to just stay home uh, type reaction to a news. Uh, and we see more, uh, more tangible, um, uh, you know, sort of actions like uh, making sure there aren't enough places where you can drop off the ballot, um, you know, all sorts of uh, sort of technical ways to, to reduce the ability of people to vote seems like where the battle is today. Um, uh, Divine, do you have a view on that? Um, well, yeah, I, I think, I think uh, Heidi is absolutely right that, that part of this battle is, is, uh, is, is fought in getting people motivated. Um, and we're seeing this on both sides, where uh, this theme that is, where um, Town Hall uh, this week said that 
I need, uh, I need everyone. And he was speaking with an African-American individual when he said this, I need everyone in, in this community to vote and, and uh, I need your support and I'm, I'm ready to work on your behalf. Um, meanwhile, uh, President Trump on, on his side too, I think has, uh, has, has done everything that he can to make sure that um, the, <laughs> the, the, the right people vote for him. Um, that's to say uh, that he, he uses the political messaging to get his base activated and, um, and meanwhile um, institutes a, a regime of poll watchers around the country to, um, to essentially politically police the polls. Yeah. Um, and uh, meanwhile, you know, in the, in the social media context as well, we, we're, seeing, uh, we're seeing some activity too. Um, particularly around uh, a topic that, that Hadi uh, alluded to, uh, suppression, voter suppression. And, um, this is one of the, one of the key intersections between, uh, between targeted political engagement over social media and, um, and, the, and the electoral process. Yeah, this, uh, this idea of poll watching, Heidi, um, I remember, you know, U.S. used to send, and I know Jimmy Carter was, uh, was very involved mm-hmm. in this, uh, to emerging democracies uh, in developing world, uh, poll watchers to assure that those democracies function. Uh, it appears to me that in the U.S., we probably need some poll watchers this time. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, is, what is your sense of where we are today? Yeah, I mean, we're in a very concerning place. Um, I'm sitting here in, in British Columbia where there's, there's currently a provincial election happening. And, and last week I watched the, the leaders debate. And directly after the leaders debate was an advertisement informing people how to vote by mail and giving them a sense of how to do it, right? In a completely non-partisan fashion, right? Encouraging people to be able to vote safely, something that we've also seen during the pandemic in many other places around the world, like South Korea, New Zealand, or other Canadian provinces um, that have also run elections. So I think we, I just say that to make very clear that it is possible to have free and fair elections during a pandemic. It has been shown by multiple Democracy. So there, there really is no reason why that cannot happen. The pandemic is not an excuse in any way, shape or form for um, voter suppression or questioning procedures around, say, mail-in ballots, for example. What we're seeing in, in the U.S., though, I think is, is partly uh, historical. It has to do with the, the U.S.'s long history of various types of um, strategic voter suppression, um, including the, the long history of disenfranchisement of African-American voters, um, something that has now come back to the fore through a whole host of, of different tools. Um, and those who are experts on, on other democracies around the world, I think, are deeply concerned because many of the things that they have observed in other countries are now happening more and more prominently within the U.S. So I think there are lots of reasons to be deeply concerned. And were this uh, another country, as you say, uh, Jimmy Carter's center probably would be sending election observers to see that this election was actually being conducted freely and fairly. So there are a whole host of different historical, contextual and other factors that, that run into this. But the question is, how can each sort of component of American society, business and so on and so forth, um, play their part in trying to make this election as, as free and fair as possible? Yeah, so, so Dibayan, you know, I have to say I'm sort of surprised in 2020 we have this problem. 
Um, <laughs> and, and and again, you know, if, if you think that the 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 population is you know generally getting more educated, they have uh, better ways to get to information. They're better tools to cross check, as as Heidi mentioned. All of those things exist. Uh, the ability to a uh, ability to uh, really uh, disenfranchise a, a group of people by providing them uh, information uh, seems counterintuitive to me. Maybe I'm too naive about it, um, but but we see that happening, right? Yeah, we are. We do. We do. And um, I, I think there. I think. I think we, we have to acknowledge uh, something that Heidi mentioned uh, earlier uh, in the podcast, which is that there are, uh, there are economic uh, disparities in the United States, and they seem to be, we, we seem to be drifting apart uh, further and further uh, across those economic lines, and, uh, and, and that, that drift is also affecting our politics and our society and everything, our culture. Um, and I, I think all that's to say that, that um, there are certain people, certain pockets, certain segments of the voting population today that, uh, that, that feel very strongly uh, that, um, that something needs to change in Washington. Um, meanwhile, there, there are others who feel that uh, uh, you know, no matter what happens in Washington, I am never going to get out of this rut. Um, and, and I think that's a very powerful, uh, I mean, it's the most powerful uh, and, and politically powerful feeling that one can have that influences what they do in the context of uh, November 3rd. Um, and, uh, and, and that's something that edu- no, no amount of education can, can really alleviate. Um, that's to say, feeling fully part of the national economy, feeling fully part of uh, a globalized economy, um, or, or not, you know, feeling left behind uh, by, by others in, in the political elite who are uh, protecting themselves. Um, I think that's the, that's the most powerful feeling that, that is implicitly driving um, this division across the country and, and that in that extends to uh, disenfranchisement. Uh, disenfranchisement is not simply about telling people that, hey, the, the election is on November 4th, or hey, um, you know, uh, other, other various lies that, that simply are the only factor in, in, the, in, in, the disenfranchisement, in, in the disenfranchisement of certain voters. No, I think I think there are often uh, underlying circumstances, economically, socially, politically, uh, that that serve as undertones to uh, the decisions people come to in, in, in that 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 we describe as, as disenfranchised. Yeah. So so Heidi, you know the the economic disparity that Dubai talked about, uh, sort of a segregation mechanism. So information-based segregation, information, uh, economics-based segregation, and there could be other attributes like religion and, and, uh, and skin color and so on. So in a, in a segregated society, um, you could get a, a cohort of people sort of feeling loss of control. And when that cohort of people get to a critical size, 
democracy could could potentially break right so do do we have uh, examples of this happening in smaller scales elsewhere yeah i mean i think many of the problems that the us is facing are not unique to the us right the the question of what globalization has done to within country inequalities is something that we also see as a question within europe for example um places like poland for instance um that was really one of the keenly fought battles over the last 10 years um the same in the uk right the debate around brexit is is also very much i think tied to these questions so i think i would say that that kind of element is is not necessarily unique to the us although it then plays out in very particular ways because of the the history of the us where we now actually find ourselves in a situation where um the wealth disparity between white americans and african americans actually appears to be greater now um than it was in the 1960s the iconic era of civil rights so i think there are lots of ways in which um the us actually needs to be in dialogue with a whole host of other countries that are facing exactly the same questions and trying to figure out how to deal with them how to deal with a world where globalization has brought great wealth to some um but has really increased inequalities within populations um and also particularly um other questions like um generational inequality um that we have seen in many yeah. places with rising house prices that uh, many younger people will definitely not earn as much as their parents but even more important than that um they don't believe that their lives will be better than their parents this again is not solely um a us question it's it's one that we see through multiple countries um but we also see some different approaches those countries are taking through say um taxation or some other policies that that also will have to be international so the way that i see it is how do we <laughs> like with history how do we tease out what's unprecedented and what's actually precedented if i can use that word um so too here i think some of the problems that we see in the us are not unique to the us um and so it behooves us to try and and disentangle that a little bit because it helps us understand how much of what is happening around even say this US election is very particular to the context of the US and how much of it actually looks quite similar to some of the discontent and problems that we see in other democracies around the world if yeah, i could, if i can briefly yeah, add to yeah, um yeah, i i i couldn't agree more with heidi this is this is not a set of problems that is uh confined to the US uh in my personal view either it's it, what's happening in the US is uh it's a it's a circumstance that's defined by uh this disparity in economic outcomes for people which can very well and is happening in in other parts of the world um but i was just uh, just looking earlier today at uh, at a at a journalist friend of mine April Glazer uh, Uh, who writes for NBC she's an investigative uh, journalist on on social media and and democracy as, as a matter of fact and um she um really interesting and and pointed to uh pointed to a question that was asked to Vice President Biden during the town hall this week uh by uh, a young African American individual um and and noted that uh in referencing that question noted that voter depression is about uh really um the goal of making people vote feel that there's no reason to vote um right. stoking their inaction and apathy and, and and that's really really i think driven by this uh distaste for for Washington DC in 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 many many camps of the voting population yeah yeah 
these uh, inequalities that both of you talked about, uh, when we think about it from a policy perspective, uh, we tend to look at it as, as, as a problem that needs to be solved uh, in that context. But, but uh, I think what you're saying also is that inequalities are threats to democracy. Uh, it, it's, it's a real threat to the system. So, you know, these are not things that you can just think about solving from taxation uh, or wealth redistribution. All of that might be interesting ideas, but uh, more importantly, it actually acts as a threat to democracy. And so so from that context, um, are there policies that uh, or actions that you have thought about, Heidi, that that, you know, democratic countries today need to need to at least think about. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a, a lively debate and uh, many people who are uh, much more economically minded than I am have put forth, I think, a whole host of, of solutions on the table. You can think about the runaway success of Thomas Piketty, for example, mm-hmm. but there's also Danny Roderick and others who have a whole host of different suggestions. And, I, and I'd also throw into the mix um, Raj Chetty, who's done a huge amount of very big data work trying to figure out what are really the evidence-based solutions we might have to these forms of inequality, which, to which we could also add um, that income inequality and wealth inequality in the case of, of the US and many other places also leads to educational inequality, but particularly in the US because of the way that public education is funded um, so that that exacerbates many inequalities. So I think that there's, there's no silver bullet, <laughs> um, but there are yeah. multiple solutions that are being suggested, whether it's different forms of taxation, um, trying to deal with uh, tax havens in different ways. Um, other solutions relate to um, the taxation of companies, not just individuals. How does one um, prevent some of the, the ways in which companies may be operating within a jurisdiction, but actually not paying taxes within that jurisdiction? There have been suggestions, for example, from um, Gabriel Zuckman from Berkeley about how to deal with that. Um, so I think there are a whole host of, of different potential policies that can be enacted. There isn't going to be one silver bullet. Um, but, but one thing that I would add is that um, it's really quite astonishing to me now um, living in Canada that, that I learned a few years ago that actually you're much more likely to achieve what we might think of as the American dream in Canada, which is to say um, the chance of you moving from um, the lowest quintile of income to the highest quintile, right? So we think about um, economic mobility, that's twice as likely to happen in Canada as it is in the United States. Um, so there are places mm. that do have more economic mobility. There are a whole host of reasons for that. There isn't just one reason. So we find ourselves in a situation where there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, yeah. I want to touch on, it's a related topic, and I want to get both of your perspectives on it. So, so my view is that many of these policy choices are really complex. So I can think about healthcare, education, energy slash environment. They are complex from a technical perspective. Uh, a famous politician once said, nobody knew healthcare is this complex, um, probably did not know much about healthcare perhaps, but, uh, but these, these, uh, these things are extremely complex technically as most people know. So you cannot really get policy choices by politically appointed uh, people. Uh, mm. You can't have an energy secretary who thinks the world, run, world runs only on oil uh, because that would be a set of bad uh, you know, energy policies, right? So, 
So, so what is your view on, we have the Federal Reserve, sort of an independent monetary authority uh, in the U.S. Um, should we have independent healthcare, education, and energy authorities who are then uh, tasked with making policies rather than the political infrastructure that does not seem to have the expertise to do so? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, we <laughs> uh, we do have some of those authorities in a sense, right, depending on which country you, you live in. And the U.S. is quite unique yeah. in the number of people who are elected or appointed to those types of positions. Right. So something like mm-hmm. the fact that you can elect judges <laughs> or um, yeah. fire chiefs. Right. Or the, um, the head of the CDC is appointed is, is a quite unusual thing to have within a democracy. And I've uh, been working over the last few months on on health communications around COVID. And so I spent a lot of time looking at many different democracies around the world. So I did a report about nine different democracies, uh, looking at how they communicate around COVID. And so you can see in many of the countries that were most successful and effective, like South Korea, for example, um, that they have reformed their public health structures after problems with the MERS outbreak in 2015 um, to really create a stronger um, CDC. And and they do all sorts of things that that are quite sort of boring, bureaucratic and institutional, but that go exactly to your question, Gil, about trying to make sure that those sorts of authorities have independence, but also political clout in some way. Um, In British Columbia, where I sit, uh, the chief medical officer is is not political, right? So I, I think there are lots of examples of of countries where that's true. Of course, you always have to interface with uh, politicians, but there are a whole host of different ways of, of structuring those sorts of authorities so that they both have independence and they have some political clout because you can be independent, but if you can't persuade politicians to do stuff, it might not help you very much. Right, right. Yeah, so Dubai, do you have a view on that? Well, um... No, I, I, I think I think Heidi said it. You know, uh, there's there's so many different things that 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 can be done, and and it's you know, Gil, to to go to something you mentioned earlier, we we have to we have to try to develop better models um, that, yeah. that can help us uh, understand how society works today, how understand the exchanges of of money and of uh, of other other uh, you know, information and and try to uh try to design policies that are equitable uh, for everyone uh the the white elephant of course is that um there's not much incentive for uh for politicians for the political class to do that um and uh so what do we really mean here uh i think i think i think in in um in, in the end uh, this is this is definitely going to take more pressure from advocates, more pressure from people who are uh, downtrodden to uh, put that pressure on on major companies, on major politicians, uh, and and ask for change, demand change. Um, without that, uh, it's going to be you know, no matter how many models we put together, no matter how many policies we might suggest out of academia or or um, wherever it might be, uh, we won't possess sufficient political will um, to do anything about uh, about the situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to touch on the social media aspect one more time. So, uh, Divine, you, you have done a lot of work in this area. Um, we have six or so um, 
that appeared to be monopolies uh, in this arena, in the social media arena, uh, they have, many of them have over a trillion dollars in market cap. They're responsible for almost one third of the total market cap in the S&P 500. Uh, all of these are really tangible symptoms that you have market power concentrated in a few companies. Um, but um, from a regulatory perspective, do we have regulations that are effective um, or if they're effective, is it just a lax uh, implementation regime that we are in that could be changed? Well, um, it's a great question and it goes to what we've been talking about for the past 20 minutes, that, uh, that there is this economic disparity. Much of it is driven by Silicon Valley. Um, and, and, you know, in a capitalistic economy, uh, you can't expect any company not to try to maximize its profits. Um, and so uh, from that perspective, we can't really have any problem with Facebook or Apple uh, or, or Google or Amazon, the four companies that were in the, in the. Any problem with their uh, doing right by themselves trying to trying to, uh, to to take over markets and, and trying to expand their their impact economically um, we can't have any problem with it but what we would say is that to the extent that uh, that their monopolization of certain sectors is hurting the rest of society we need to do something about it and that I think is what really has driven this report what's driven, uh, all the all the advocacy that that we have seen, and and I I do think that there are a few different ways that we could to to, to address what you're asking. There are a few different ways we could think about the competition policy problem, um, and it's a it's a long conversation. But um, in the end, uh, I think it'll boil down to you know, do we want to renegotiate fundamentally renegotiate the balance of power between companies like Facebook and the rest of society? Do we want to declare that these are essentially natural monopolies and hold them accountable through stringent regulation uh, that's uh, that that's enforced by the by government regulatory authorities or um, do we do we want to instead uh, kind of keep the internet as is uh, for the foreseeable future and, and maybe take certain marginal measures um, to to let's say, close down the opportunity for mergers and acquisitions or, or things like that uh, for these dominant firms. Uh, it's it's going to boil down to that. Um, and uh, and yet, uh, you know, there's there's a whole menu of options uh, from a regulatory perspective that we could, could try to pursue. Too much to uh, recount. Yeah, yeah. So so in conclusion, um, I want to <laughs> I want you to make a prediction. Not, not on the election, uh, but uh, the process. Uh, and so, uh, so you know, are we likely, I'm talking about the U.S. specifically now, are we likely to get a fair and free election? Are we likely to get um, results that are accepted by the population? And are we likely to get a, a transfer, if a transfer power is needed, a, a transfer of power that that you expect of uh, of a democracy. Um, Heidi, do you want to go? Oh, first? Uh, <laughs> being trained as a historian <laughs> teaches you that predicting the future is a <laughs> is a fool's game. <laughs> Many people in 1989 yeah. who said the Berlin Wall would never fall. So, <laughs> um, I think that yeah. what I would yeah, say yeah. is I'm worried. 
that's one way. But I'm worried yeah. about how this election will unfold and what a transfer of power could look like. And that worry in and of itself is an extremely concerning sign for a democracy. And it's something that regardless of, of outcome, there needs to be a recommitment to figuring out how do we create a, a democracy where elections do not have the vast majority of experts looking at it, deeply concerned about what might happen. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think we, we need to be wary um, and uh, we, need to, we need to come in with the expectation that uh, while we may have a fair election, um, there, there are politicians who often do exactly what they say will, they will do. And, and, uh, and uh, here we have seen that, that um, the president seems to be preparing himself uh, for uh, potentially a a loss, as the as the polls uh, very clearly uh, predict right now, and and um, and is is doing whatever he can to, to kind of protect his power. And um, I think I think uh, in the end uh, we will uh, potentially see some of that, um, and we have to do whatever we can to to prevent that kind of. Uh, uh, that kind of thing from happening. Um, I serve on uh, the, the National Task Force on Election Crises, and um, we are we are constantly thinking about different strategies to push back against the idea that a fair and free election uh, should be challenged uh, by any uh, political faction. Yeah, yeah. You know, it sounds to me that you know it's a threat to the institutions that have been built up over hundreds of years. And it takes hundreds of years to build up a, uh, a robust democracy. Uh, and you can actually lose it in a, in a minute. Uh, and so, yeah, like you say, many people are worried. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll get a good outcome. This has been great, guys. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me on a weekend. And uh, good luck with uh, everything that you do. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.